following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. About 18 miles northwest of downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is a 3,500-acre national park called Valley Forge. Now, some of you may not have been there yet, because we don't live anywhere near Philadelphia, but that's where I grew up. And so I have a number of pleasant memories of time spent in that park with my dad and my siblings and my mom, and even with Mrs. Groff and a couple of the kids before we moved away. However, what this... 3,500, again, that's a big park, Acre Park memorializes is anything but pleasant. It's the site of one of the most brutal episodes in American history. During the winter of 1777 to 1778, after the British had captured Philadelphia, which was the capital of this newly independent nation, driving out the American government and the soldiers serving under General Washington, 12,000 people, 12,000 people in colonial America, men, women, and children, making up what was called at that time the Continental Army, set up a winter camp at Valley Forge, again, under the leadership of General Washington. The winter was relatively mild, but supplies were very short. Rations were meager, and disease ran rampant. So maybe some of you boys know the Marquis de Lafayette, that famous commander who came over from France. He recalled years later, quote, the unfortunate soldiers were in want of everything. They had neither coats, hats, shirts, nor shoes. Their feet and legs froze till they had become almost black, and it was often necessary to amputate them, end quote. All told, somewhere between 1,700 to 2,000 troops died of various diseases at Valley Forge. And this winter could have, perhaps it should have been, the end of the American Revolution. But today, Valley Forge is generally recognized not as a place of death and disease, but rather as a critical turning point in the Revolutionary War. It was, it was here through the experience and the trial of great difficulty and need in the face of death by disease and chill that the ragtag American forces became a true fighting unit. This is where they became an army. There are many reasons we could list that brought about this outcome, but I want to highlight just one possible motivation of the men, one possible source of inspiration to them in this time of great difficulty. It's drawn from a collection of essays called The Crisis, which General Washington made sure to have read to the men who were there. These were written by Thomas Paine, no Christian fellow, but they're good words nonetheless. And this is how the first essay begins. Quote, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious 
the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if as celestial or heavenly an article as freedom should not be highly rated, end quote. In other words, there's no sugarcoating the experience of a war-weary, hungry, and cold soldier camped out in Valley Forge. The difficulties of war are not denied or hidden away in these words that General Washington put in front of his men. Rather, the difficulties are stared straight in the face. But freedom from tyranny is put forth as the great goal of whatever sufferings Washington's men might experience. And this, this presentation of, of great difficulty with great gain is the hallmark of effective and honest leadership. That brings us to the eighth beatitude this morning, by way of somewhat lengthy historical introduction. Christ presents to us great difficulty in the Christian life, in the kingdom of heaven, but wedded together with great gain promised to his disciples. In setting out the distinctive marks of Christian discipleship, of what it means to follow him, and what human well-being looks like in the kingdom of heaven, Christ is beginning to flesh out his declaration of war against the powers of darkness in the world. His good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, from Matthew 4.17, is in fact a declaration of war against a great enemy. And as king, Christ doesn't retreat into some secret, undisclosed location, but rather... And as Americans, we might think of General Washington at Valley Forge and the Marquis de Lafayette and General von Steuben and all those men. Rather, Christ takes his stand at the front lines. He camps out with his people in the struggle against sin and Satan. In doing this, he shows his disciples, he shows you and me, he shows each of us what kind of resistance then we should expect from those who oppose his rule and his reign. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He stares it straight in the face. The people of God is poor, mourning, gentle, hungry for righteousness, merciful, and pure in heart peacemakers will experience persecution. Persecution. So certain is this trial of persecution that Christ takes the final two Beatitudes to describe it, to prepare his disciples for it, and he pairs great difficulty with great gain. This morning, I'd like to show you from our text, this one verse, that though Christ-like righteousness invites persecution from many, the Christian's high calling is to follow Christ from fullness of life. Though Christ-like righteousness invites persecution from many, the Christian's high calling is to follow Christ from fullness of life. Are you a young Christian setting out on the Christian life, wondering, what do I expect? What have I been promised? Or are you a longtime Christian, growing tired under the weight of many years of trial and pain, what seems like a long and hard winter? Well, whatever the case may be, this beatitude in Matthew 5.10 it is one of the most important truths for you to consider daily 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's perhaps the most important verse in the Bible. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but from a certain perspective, it is of first importance, at least for the Christian life. We must be reminded of this feature of the Christian faith in life. For Paul will later tell us in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And John writes in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So though Christ-like righteousness invites persecution from many, the Christian's high calling is to follow Christ from fullness of life. We'll break this down into three parts this morning. Christ-like righteousness from God, and then persecution from many, really what that looks like, and following Christ from fullness of life. We'll start with what is the most important phrase of the verse in thinking about Christ-like righteousness from God. There's two things I wish to show you about this righteousness. In the first place, it is greater righteousness than that of the legalists whom Christ was confronting. It's also grace-given righteousness from the king of heaven. It's not generated on our own. It's not something he's expecting us to produce apart from him. So first, how is it greater than the righteousness of the legalists, those men in Christ's day who were called scribes and Pharisees? Well, this righteousness was from the inside out. You see, suffering for other reasons than this kind of righteousness, it's not profitable. 1 Peter 4.15, Peter writes, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. Rather, as Christians, we shouldn't look for trouble, but we should expect such suffering to come just by being righteous. And what is that? What is this righteousness? Simply, being true and sincere Christians, being like Jesus. It's Christ-likeness, as the heading intimates. It's Christ-like righteousness. It's not winsomeness. It's not kindness. It's not even seeking to you know, help people resolve their conflicts. It's, it's not being polite or hospitable. It's being like Jesus, and there's a big difference here. Let me illustrate. When I worked at a, uh, a guitar store out of college, I remember the district manager coming by one Saturday morning before we opened, and he gave a little pep talk to all the staff there. And he said, in order to promote good customer service, he said, now I want you all, you know, whatever background you come from, when you come to the store, I want you to, you know, be like good Christians. And I, I thought, wow, that's surprising. I was the only Christian there. I thought, what in the world does he mean? He said, be like good Christians. You know, treat people right. Be nice to folks. Help them find things that they want. What was his idea of being a true Christian? It was being winsome, being kind, being perhaps hospitable or loving or helpful. And all of that is true. But he left out a key component. Being a Christian means having no other gods before the Lord God Almighty. It means standing for truth, wedded with kindness and gentleness and respect and, and honor for others and recognizing their dignity as being made in the image of our God. Consider Paul's description of being a Christian. In Acts 24, 16, he's giving his defense to a governor and he says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before man. 
You see, it's very easy to be nice to people in order to curry favor or to sell them a guitar or a car or a house or whatever. But it's another matter entirely to have a blameless conscience before God, both before God and before man. That's the key here. You see, this is greater righteousness than that of the legalists, than that of the people who say, act a certain way so people like you. That was essentially the message of the scribes and Pharisees. Christ's righteousness is greater than that of the superficially religious people of his day. In Matthew 23, 5, he describes them like this. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. If that's why you do Christian things, if that's why you pursue the rigor and discipline of the Christian life, to be noticed by men, then my friend, you are not any better than the Pharisees who nailed Jesus to the cross. That's key here. Christ's righteousness, Christ-like righteousness, is so much greater because it's a matter of the inward man. Yes, there are actions that are commanded of you, evangelical duties, You should speak in a certain way and act in a certain way and avoid certain things of the world. But is is it flowing from your heart? Is it flowing out of a heart wrought uh, or a heart conviction and commitment to the Lord God Almighty wrought by his spirit himself? And that brings me to my second point here under this heading that this righteousness is a gift of grace. It's grace-given righteousness from the king of heaven himself. You see, sincere inward purity of heart and of life, it's a gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't drum it up on your own. You can't make it yourself. In fact, our hearts by themselves are a factory of idols, as we're told in uh, in Calvin's Institutes, and rightly so, because as a result of the fall, we've all been corrupted down into our innermost being. And so something needs to happen from outside of us, and that's where God comes in. This sincere, inward purity of life is a gift of God's grace paired with the righteousness of Christ given to us in justification. You might have heard this before, but every man has, upon entering this world, each of you boys and girls has three problems. That's six. Three problems. You have a bad record. You have a record of sin inherited from Adam, and that comes with that is legal condemnation. God as a judge says guilty. You have a bad heart that wants to sin and races after sin. And out of that comes in a bad and self-destructive life where you're prone to do injury to yourself and others as you pursue the enticements or the desires of this evil age. And God comes with three solutions for you then. Christ Jesus, in what we call justification, takes your bad record and puts it on himself on the cross and gives to you his good record. And the way you receive that is through faith itself, which is a gift. And that's wrought in you by the Spirit when he gives you a new heart to desire not the things of this world, but to desire the things of God. And then out of that new record and new heart that God has given you, you can then experience a new full life. And we'll look at that in a moment when we think of kingdom living and the fullness of life. This gospel is good news precisely because Christ comes not not telling you to produce it yourself, 
but he comes bearing God's grace for needy sinners. He comes with not just a big bag of gifts, but a whole mansion of gifts for you. And that's what makes the gospel such good news. Grace that justifies is the same grace from God that sanctifies. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the grace that gives you a right record and the grace that makes you holy. Grace that makes us acceptable to God in terms of our record before his judgment seat is the same grace that makes us like him in our lives from the heart. And so this Christ-like righteousness greater than that of the legalists, is not a matter of external realities or actions and speech only, but it's a matter of the heart. It's right down to our very affections, what we desire, what we want, what we yearn for. And all of this is a gift from the King of Heaven Himself. So being Christ-like then, having this greater righteousness than any legalist, receiving this gift from God, Christ tells us that such righteousness, true righteousness, is not welcomed by the world, but actually invites persecution from many. In fact, he guarantees that this will happen. Persecution caused by a supernatural difference, but persecution leading to a supernatural blessedness. So first, caused by a supernatural difference. Man is disgusted with true righteousness. Why is that? Well, we're told that this is the case. Certainly, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head, they being the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, if they have called the head of the house, that's Jesus, Beelzebub, Lord of the flies, how much more will... the Uh, Will they malign or hate the members of his household? Jesus is saying, if they don't like me and you're following me, they're not going to like you. That's the case. He puts this even more pointedly in John 15, verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world... But I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Man is disgusted with true righteousness like a bear would be disgusted with you if you woke it up out of hibernation. Will you poke a sleeping bear? If so, don't do it while I'm around. I don't want to face that. But why is it that man is disgusted with true righteousness? Not because we're good, not because we're noble or self-sacrificing in human terms. I mean, consider that. We, the world awards medals of honor to soldiers who give their lives to protect their brothers. That's a good and noble and self-sacrificing thing, and the world celebrates that. No, it's not for those reasons that the world hates the Christian and his Christ-like righteousness. They despise it. They reject it. They seek to persecute it because it's different than them. Because of what I said before, they can't produce it on their own because it comes down from heaven. It's not a work of man. It's a work of God. And they know that without God's help, they can't do it. Think about 
what is said in Luke 6, 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. The false prophets told the fathers that indeed everything is good. There's peace. There's peace. Remember the prophets going before the false kings of Israel and saying, yeah, you go out, you'll win. The Lord is with you. You can do it. Your plan is good. And certainly if you have that message, no one's going to be angry at you. But if you have a message of you can't do it, you need the Lord. People aren't going to like that. Indeed, we come with the most offensive message of all. We declare to our neighbors, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, our aunts, our uncles, perhaps our own parents and our children, we say, you must be born again. And what man can cause himself to be born? You mothers here who have either given birth or are about to give birth, your baby will not deliver him or herself. You deliver the child The doctor delivers the child in a way, helping that along. But the baby's not really doing it, even if we tend to say that sometimes. Who can cause himself to be reborn? When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What was Nicodemus's very common sense response? How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus was thinking, how can I do that? How does that work? And that's, that's the natural response. And the offense that comes from telling people they must be born again, that they must have a God-given Christ-like righteousness, the offense is, I can't do that. That's impossible. Why would you tell me to do that? Get out of my face. Get out of my way. That's a, that's a pointless message. Silence. That's the response. What is this a reflection of? It takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15. In the Garden of Eden after the fall, what does God say to the serpent? He says, I have set, I have placed, I have appointed, I have put enmity, malice, hatred, contempt between your seed, the serpent's seed, and the woman's seed. There will be a conflict between them. Now, ultimately, we see that conflict resolved on the cross where Christ, as the seed of the woman, crushes the seed of the serpent's head once for all. But we see it worked out through human history, both in Scripture and beyond Scripture in the history of the church. We see it worked out in persecution of saints with Mordecai and Haman. Haman is the seed of the serpent seeking to annihilate the Jews, the seed of the woman. And we can multiply examples of this perhaps ad infinitum or forever and ever. The offense is this supernatural difference. Now, this persecution caused by a supernatural difference actually leads to a supernatural blessedness. So here's the crisis we're in, that we're facing this persecution, facing this conflict in the world around us today. But Christ, staring that in the face, holds forth as well the blessedness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What recourse do we have in this crisis? That that we have a supernatural help and refuge, a supernatural rock, a supernatural deliverer. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 says this, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. 
He's not of nature. He's super nature. He made heaven and earth, and he's our helper. Psalm 34, 15 to 19, then continues on the same theme. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. When you need help, you cry to the Lord. His ears are open to you. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of the, all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. That description that Christ uses of his disciples. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We could even say persecutions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then Psalm 60, verses 4, 11, and 12 wrap this up for us. In praying to God, you have given a banner. A banner to those who fear you. That it may be displayed because of the truth. Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. It's a supernatural help, the recourse we have, the thing we turn to when we're, when we're faced with persecution and trial is supernatural. He is supernatural. It is not by man but by God himself that he will do it. It is through such trial and tribulation, this persecution caused by a supernatural difference, that we enter the kingdom of God and experience a supernatural blessedness. The apostles tell us this. In Acts 14.22, we're told, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God James said, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Speaking of persecutors. So we fleshed out, I know it's been a whirlwind, but fleshed out, the first half of the beatitude under these two headings, Christ-like righteousness from God and persecution from many, we can then proceed to our third and final heading. What awaits those who permit themselves to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? What awaits those who do not forsake the Lord, who stand with him, even when faced with the hostility of the world? We see this under following Christ from fullness of life. Christ promises fullness of life. He promises fullness of life now, but also fullness of life to come. To give you some 50 cent words here, Christ promises in his inaugurated kingdom fullness of life, and Christ promises in his consummated kingdom fullness of life. Inaugurated, it's starting now. But to be consummated, we await the full um, completion or consummation, uh, fulfillment of the promise. So first, considering what it looks like now, Paul describes the inaugurated blessings of the kingdom of heaven in Ephesians 1.3 when he says, indeed, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Not who will bless us or who has yet to bless us, but Paul says, and he understands this right at the beginning of his letter to the church in Ephesus, that God the Father 
has blessed us in Christ already. And this verse can and has been ripped out of context in order to promote all kinds of errors, self-help Christianity, where if you do X, Y, and Z, the Lord will bless you because, hey, he has blessed us with every spiritual gift in heaven. We just need to access it by doing X, Y, and Z, or perhaps even more clearly the health and wealth prosperity gospel nonsense that's out there where someone says, if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. You got to claim it, name it, grab hold of that promise to get that car that house, that nice job, a cure from cancer, avoidance of pain. That's taking this verse and twisting it. Paul, among all men, would never, ever teach you that because you've been blessed, you can have anything you want. No. What he's telling you is that the kingdom of heaven is spiritual kingdom, that which transcends our earthly pleasures and experience, that it's already breaking in to our lives now. What does that look like? Christ came to rescue us from this present evil age and all of its vain desires. He gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, Paul writes in Galatians 1.4. He does not prevent us from experiencing suffering, but he delivers us through and out of it. He delivers us from the sting of that suffering and death. Remember I told you, was it last week or a couple weeks ago, when I visited with Mrs. Kathleen Curto about nine days before she died, and I had opportunity to speak to Dr. Curto while she was with the nurse, he said to me, you know, in God's good providence, we've been reading something out of Thomas Watson where he makes the point that... When we suffer trials, even those that lead to death, it's a blessing from God who sanctifies us through them and makes makes us more like Jesus. I'm sitting with a man whose wife of 50 years was dying of cancer, and he's telling me that she and he both regarded this, could, could understand this, I'll put it that way, could understand and apply this great difficulty as a blessing from the hand of God. Yes, there was pain. There was suffering, sadness, and sorrow. But this this sting of it all was was evacuated in the light of what God was doing in their lives. He delivers us from the sting of suffering. Suffering then becomes an occasion to glorify God. Consider Daniel 3.25, and going back to an example of persecution, the, uh, the three young men thrown into the fiery furnace, and, uh, and, and one of the onlookers says, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Glory given to God, even in our trials and our persecutions. They become occasions to do good to others. Perhaps you're witnessing other people getting persecuted, and the persecution, for whatever reason, is passing you by, and yet you have opportunities to render aid to those people. For example, what's going on in Ukraine? It's not necessarily religious persecution, but it's a great upheaval in their country, and yet, because you have 
millions of Ukrainians flooding over borders into the rest of Europe, we now, as Christians, as a church, have opportunity to do good to our fellow men. And we're seeing that in Budapest with our brothers at the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Central and Eastern Europe and Peter Jabo. And then it's also an opportunity to experience special comforts from the Spirit, from the Holy Spirit himself, whom we're told uh, this about his work. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. This is what fullness of life looks like here and now. This is a weighty teaching. It's a difficult teaching. And perhaps you're not suffering acutely right now, particularly you boys and girls, but there may come a time when your friends reject you, when college professors mock you and ridicule you for what you believe, when you're denied jobs, perhaps even imprisoned for your faith in decades to come. Your parents, we really cannot even imagine what it's going to be like for you. But remember this, that the sting of all these trials, they've been taken away in the light of God's goodness and grace to us in Christ Jesus. Make this verse something of a motto. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for, their, for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember this. Hold fast to this teaching from your Lord and Savior when the persecution comes. Well, this fullness of life, it's not limited to today. I can't end there. But Christ is prospectively, even though he's saying it's theirs now, the kingdom is theirs now, he's Casting a vision for what the future shall be, when they shall be called sons of God, when they shall behold the face of the Lord in, uh, immediately, face to face. Christ's promise for judgment day is a promise of kingdom possession. Later on in the gospel, he'll say, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, and do what? Inherit the kingdom. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. This applies to us as much as it applies to the disciples. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus in his ministry has this theme of inheriting a kingdom tied to standing with him, even being persecuted with him, of standing and being faithful. This is a glorious promise of things to come for you, dear believer. And this, this glory that's been set before you, doesn't it, doesn't it inflame your heart and make you want to stand strong in the power of Christ, in the power of his spirit? You see, at Christ's return, his enemies will flee, but you and I, we will greet him on that day of resurrection, as a great reunion. It's a reunion of all those who have suffered in his name, one with another, but a reunion with him, with our blessed Lord and Savior, who will come not as a judge, but as a deliverer and as our king. First Peter 4.13, he writes, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, the persecutions of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And finally, your entrance into glory through faith, faith in Jesus, and not in your own endurance or your own perseverance, but faith in Christ, your entrance into glory then will be the fulfillment of God's promise, not just to you, but to all his church, 
all his saints. Hebrews 11 ends, that great hall of faith describing all the great men and women of faith through the ages. It ends with this description of what awaits them. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, not through their works, but through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What a great and glorious day this, this will be, that day which awaits us, when we shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, when the sons of God will be revealed in fullness of glory, when Christ shall descend with a shout and the trump shall resound and all of the beautiful imagery we're given in Revelation comes to pass, when the saints shall be perfected, even as it says here, with us, or not, uh, it won't happen apart from us, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Well, the great war against sin and Satan will be won on that day. In fact, it was decided on the cross, but the full realization of it is yet to be experienced. Returning back to my old stomping grounds, back to Valley Forge, after that winter of 1777 to 78, when spring had sprung, the Continental Army proved itself at the Battle of Monmouth in June 1778, right across the Delaware uh, River into New Jersey at the courthouse there. It wasn't a grand battle, but it was enough of a victory that the Americans uh, decisively put the British on the defensive, you see. And then, as they say, the rest is history. The war, effectively, was going to be won. Well, what about you and me in our war, in our battle against sin and Satan and temptation? See, we're in a war. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against redcoats. It's not against Al-Qaeda. It's not against Russia. It's not against the HOA or the IRS. No. We're in a war against spiritual powers and principalities. We are in a war against sin and that great enemy of old, Satan. Against, as it's put another way, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've heard the honest speech of our commander-in-chief, of our great leader, of our conquering king. We know what to expect. And what is it? Persecution. Persecution with a supernatural cause, but with a supernatural blessedness attached to it. And we know what's set before us, possession of the kingdom of heaven. Because, as I said earlier, though Christ-like righteousness invites persecution from many, the Christian's high calling is to follow Christ from fullness of life. The Christian's high calling is to follow Christ from a fullness of life. Indeed, Christ calls you to something that is hard. He calls you to something, boys and girls, that is completely impossible. Something that you cannot do on your own, in your own strength. He calls you to be zealous for God and to be righteous like Him. To be righteous in Him to the point that the world, even the visible church, religious people, rejects you and persecutes you. But consider what Christ suffered for zeal and righteousness. Consider that which we commemorate and remember at the table when we come for communion. Consider the description of him drawn from Psalm 69 and repeated in John 2. That which is the root cause of all his suffering, suffering for righteousness, 
We're told, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a supernatural zeal, a supernatural righteousness. It's that to which you are called even now, each of you, husbands and wives, men and women, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. It's a zeal that does not give birth to fanaticism or a lack of wisdom or just an offensive bearing in your life, no. It's rather a zeal that gives birth to what we've already been looking at these past weeks, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, gentleness and meekness, hunger for righteousness, mercy toward fellow man, purity of heart, peacemaking even, and what we've seen today, willingness to endure persecution for the sake of the righteousness of God. It's a supernatural, God-given zeal, born of God's grace is what I mean, that will lead you then into the kingdom of heaven to be seated at the table of honor at the wedding supper of the Lamb at his high feast, which we anticipate today when we come to the table. Let's stand together for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.